it's uh, fitting that our sermon this morning is about trusting in God. We are here trusting in our sound people, and they have done a fantastic job of really uh, trying to adjust when things went the wrong direction here this morning. In fact, we exercise trust every day, don't we? We trust the engineers who build our, or who design our bridges and the builders who make them when we drive on them and when we walk on them. We trust these engineers and builders on the airplanes that we fly in, the car or the bike that we regularly use, the elevator, the escalator, the stairway, even the chair you're sitting on right now. And experience has taught us that these things can be trusted to perform uh, as, as they were designed to do. I can think of one place that I've been now two or three times, my family, and really demonstrates this idea of trust in builders. I'm thinking of the, uh, down in Canyon City, Colorado, the Royal Gorge. You go across this suspension bridge that's high over the Arkansas River, 1,000 feet above it. Walking across that, you can actually feel it moving as you're walking across. Or you go up even a little bit higher onto the cable car. And the single steel cable, get people, about 20 people in that cable car, and you go across the canyon. You're trusting someone, aren't you, when you do that sort of thing? You're trusting these engineers and builders. But what about the issue of trust when it relates to things that we cannot see? particularly in our spiritual lives. Can God's word be trusted? Can we be certain of our future destiny? Are God's promises of blessing and reward something that we can count on? What about our problem with sin, with the penalty of our sin? Can it be removed and can we really have victory over it? Now the writer of Hebrews is concerned about questions like these because he writes about the certainty of God's promises in Hebrews 6. So I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles or your whatever device you have with the Bible on it. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20 this morning will be our passage. And in this passage, the writer wants to encourage us to trust in the only one who can be absolutely trusted every time, all the time, and at any time. Well, he's not a man who can make mistakes. He's not a man that changes his mind or that fails to have the resources to support his promises. He's not a man that he should go back on his word. I'd like to read the passage here before we look at it more closely. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement 
to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's important before we embark on this passage to get a little bit of an idea about what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do in this book. Then we could summarize the purpose of the book of Hebrews as the call for us to have faith or to believe in Jesus as the faithful or exalted Son of God and as a faithful high priest. Those two ideas are brought out by the author in both in his exposition about Jesus as, a, as our eternal or exalted Son of God and as our faithful high priest. And in between the exposition of those two ideas about Jesus, the author throws in warnings. In fact, he has five of them as you walk through the book. Now, our passage today comes on the heels of the third warning that he gives as he's walking through the book. And again, he's already been talking about the need to believe in Jesus, to look to Jesus as our Son of God, as the exalted Son of God, as a faithful high priest. Comes to the end of that third warning that began at the beginning of chapter 6. And he, this actually then, this, this section on the heels of that warning serves as a transition between what he began in the exposition about the high priest in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 5. He's going to continue that here in chapter 7, from chapters 7 through, uh, through chapter 10. So our section here is a transitional idea, but has a very important point to make in regard or as we get ready to think about Jesus as our faithful high priest and the superior offering that he gives. And if you look in verses 11 and 12, we see the author at the end of that warning encouraging us, as he says, their desire that each of you would have the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, we see this idea of having faith in and trusting in God. And this is the, uh, the background then, the context into which we find our passage here before us. So the, writers is, the writer is encouraging us to imitate these who have indeed inherited what has been promised. And this leads the writer then to discuss the example of Abraham, who received what had been promised, and to discuss the ramifications of this story of Abraham to us. And what are, the, what are the reasons, or what is the main reason for bringing up Abraham here again in, in this passage? Well, we see it in verse 18, which I've already read, that we would have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That we would have strong encouragement to trust in the promises of God. In fact, I would think that that is the main idea here in our passage today. You need to trust in the promises of God, and you can trust in the promises of God, because He is faithful. And the writer brings out, as we look at this passage, there are two basic ideas that he brings this point across to us in the need to trust in Jesus, 
First of all, we need to learn from the story of Abraham. And then secondly, we need to meditate on the certainty of God's promises and how he enforces that certainty. We'll see in a moment here as we look more closely at the passage. So first, let's look at the story of Abraham that the writer is referring to here. Again, you're probably very familiar with the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham is asked to sacrifice his own son. This son who was the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. In fact, three times before chapter 22, in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 of Genesis, God had promised Abraham three things. He'd promised him an offspring, he'd promised him land, and he'd promised him blessing. And Abraham had waited 25 years for God to answer that promise about an offspring. And here he came, Isaac. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And God fulfills that promise that they had waited for 25 years for him to fulfill. And now God comes to Abraham with a test in chapter 22, and he says, I want you to sacrifice your son that son that you were waiting for 25 years to receive in the promise from me. And Abraham obeyed. He took his son, as you know, and he went to Mount Moriah there in chapter 22. And just as he was getting ready to plunge the knife into the, into the chest of his son, God stopped him. And he said, now I see, Abraham, that you do believe in me, that you do trust me. And there was a ram caught in the thicket there behind where they were. And then God, then God speaks again to Abraham in that account. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 22, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. So God swears by his own name, it says there, by himself. And what does he swear? Well, we see that here in the text in Hebrews. That surely I will bless you and multiply you. An amazing account of the faithfulness of God to Abraham in the midst of a very trying situation. Now, why did God swear? Isn't his word enough? We're even told here in the text he couldn't swear by anything greater, anyone greater than himself. So that's what he does. He swears by himself. And he promises to Abraham that he can be assured beyond doubt that he will fulfill his promise to him. I will surely bless you and multiply you. And then what is the result of that promise that God makes there to Abraham? Well, we see it here in, back in Hebrews 6, verse 7, verse 6, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He had patiently waited, the text tells us. I think if we were all to admit to ourselves how good we're at waiting, we would not do very well. I mean, Abraham waited 25 years. And we know that God quite frequently calls upon us to wait. I think of the text in Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Or in Lamentations 3, 
verses 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good to wait. Well, that's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to wait. We want God to give the results of His promises, to fulfill His promises now. We want God to solve the problem that we're facing in our lives right now. Perhaps it's a wayward child. Perhaps it's sickness that you're experiencing. You want it done now. Or a relationship that's broken and needs to be fixed. Or a financial challenge. And so many other areas of life. And we don't want to wait. We want it fixed now. And the story of Abraham reminds us that God makes promises and that God fulfills promises in his time and in his way and he can be trusted. So we see, first of all, in our text here, the importance of waiting on God. And Abraham is a great illustration of this truth. Well, that moves us to the second main idea that we see in this text, and that is the importance here of meditating on the certainty of God's promises. As we continue in the text here, we read in verse, 14, in verse 16, people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. We're told here that people swear by someone greater, and that oaths confirm their statements, and that the oaths they swear stifle any concern about fulfillments of obligations. Now, in the ancient Near East, the way to look at oaths and covenants and promises is a little bit different than our day. I think it's helpful to think about what is meant here when we talk about an oath in a covenant. It was a very common practice. It's very similar, I would say, to our signature that we would give on a transaction. Write a signature on a purchase agreement, you know, purchasing a house or on a loan agreement. In the ancient Near East, a covenant agreement between two parties would be confirmed with an oath, which was simply a promise to fulfill one's obligation in that covenant transaction. You would say something like, I swear by, and then you would put that name of that person who is more important than you in that blank, that I will keep my end of this bargain. So a, a, an oath was very common. So as we come back then to verse 16 and see the point that the author is making here, oaths used properly did indeed help to confirm the truth of a promise. So it's not an odd thing that God would use an oath in talking to Abraham. And that's what he does here. God confirmed this promise to Abraham with an oath. But as we move into verse 17 and following here in our text, we're told, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, there's a behind this statement here, we're moving, and the author is moving us from a discussion about Abraham to a discussion about Jesus. Because he refers to this unchangeable oath. And you can see in verse 20, 
where he's going. Because he says, Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a lot going on in this text here, and I'll get to those in a moment here. But again, the point here is, is that God wants to show the heirs of his promise, his unchanging purpose, and he does it with an oath. God is saying, I will accomplish what I promise. I am immutable. I am holy. I do not lie. I am omnipotent. I can and I will do what I say. Now, we hear promises like this when we hear about God making these promises, and we still have to ask ourselves, then why do I still worry? Why am I still afraid? Why, why do I still get angry? And I think what's going on in these situations is rather than preaching this truth about God's purposes and ability to fulfill His promises, we're not preaching that truth to ourselves. Rather, we're listening to ourselves. Quite frequently, what we're hearing is bad advice. We're listening to our emotions. We're listening to our culture. We're listening to our circumstances. And these are causing us to be worried and afraid and angry and not trusting in the Word of God. Now we can see in this text, in verse 17, that God desires to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose. There are two questions I think come to mind as I look at this verse, as we look at this verse. What is the promise and who are the heirs of that promise? I think it might be tempting as we look at those two questions to bring in ideas, perhaps even from the story of Abraham. But I'd like us to think specifically here about what is the promise? What is the promise that the author of Hebrews is bringing to our attention? I think we can see what those promises are by looking in the book itself. Already, by this point in the text, the writer of Hebrews has told us that if we trust in God, He will save us. We have the promise of His salvation. We have the promise of an eternal rest. That's a big theme in verses in chapters 3 and 4. We have the promise of a clear conscience that can only come from the cleansing blood of Christ. We have the promise of sanctification, as we read about in chapter 10, when he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, we are told. These are just some of the promises that God makes to us in the book of Hebrews. And I think these are in mind, in the writer's mind here, as he says to us that we are heirs of these promises and that they're based on the unchangeable character of God. Now, who is the recipient of these promises? Are these promises, are we talking here about Abraham again or about Isaac or Abraham's offspring? No, I think the text tells us who are the recipients of these promises. Let's, let's see what the, the text tells us. In verse 18, in the middle of the verse, we read that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. In verse, in, in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. Verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Who are the we 
And who is the hour in this passage? It's us. It's Christians. We are the recipients of these great promises. Even 4,000 years ago, when God was speaking to Abraham on Mount Moriah, he could see down the corridors of world history to you and me, to Christians. And his intention in his oath to Abraham was not merely to encourage Abraham's faith in his word, but it was also to encourage us. You see, these accounts in the Old Testament are not just distant events on a historical timeline. They are testimonials to the work of an unchanging, timeless God who continues to work intimately with every single individual he has called out of this world. His actions back there were done with a goal of challenging and encouraging each Christian here. Does God know what is coming up in your future? Of course. Does he determine the events in your life that have not yet taken place? Yes. Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that God is working out all of his purposes in every situation of everyone's life. He is in control. Is he surprised by the future? Does he need to adjust to things when they don't go the way that he planned for them to go? Absolutely not. If I can turn in my Bible without losing it here, um, Isaiah chapter 45 we read this verses 21 through 23 declare and present your case let them take counsel together who told this long ago who declared it of old was it not I the Lord and there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior there is none besides me Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Yes, God controls the future. It does not surprise him because he's controlling it. And he can be trusted because he knows and determines the future. Why does the writer of Hebrews then give this whole account about oaths and about God's promises and the certainty of them? Well, we see in verse 18, it is so that you and me might have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope that is set before us. And I think it's interesting to see how the writer refers to us Christians here. He says we have fled for refuge to God. We have fled for refuge to God. I think that's a great way of understanding what it is for the, hope, for the Christian. Present and future salvation are ours. We have fled to God. We have fled to Him for the certainty of our eternal relationship with Him. It is not just a subjective wish, but it is the objective certainty of our salvation. And this is truly... What you have if you have placed your faith in God for salvation. You have fled to Him in order to grasp the hope of eternal life. For you, death is not fearful. For you, life is now lived in light of that future certainty. 
You have fled to God because He has revealed the certainty of your future salvation. We Christians want to be in eternal relationship with Christ because we have come to love and to desire this Creator and Redeemer more than life itself. He's our only hope. We've sung of that this morning. He's our only hope. And these words should reverberate in the experience of every Christian here today. You see, you raced. You sprinted. You made every effort to flee to God's side so that you could receive this wonderful gift of salvation that He offered to you so freely. Of course, the opposite is true if you are an unbeliever here today. The unbeliever, we are told in God's Word, is actually fleeing away from God. The unbeliever does not want the light. He wants to stay in the dark. But that is not true of you if you have trusted Christ. You have fled to Him for refuge. And how is it then that we, what is the means that God uses to give us this strong encouragement? It is these two unchangeable things in verse 18. These two unchangeable things. Now there have been quite a few pages written in the commentaries about what these two unchangeable things are. But I think that we have good reason to say, and I've already mentioned it, that this is a reference to Psalm 110 and verse 4. And this passage is expounded upon in great detail in chapters 7 through 10 here in Hebrews. What is Psalm 110, verse 4? Well, if you've read Hebrews before, you know what the passage is. But I will read it for you again, because this is, I think, what he's referring to. Remember, he's comparing the oath that God made to Abraham to the oath that God made in Psalm 110. And what is that oath? I'm going to... Read it here shortly. Here we go. Psalm Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's the promise. Just like God swore to Abraham, I will surely multiply you and bless you. God also swore to this one who is going to be in the line of Melchizedek, this priest forever. And who is that? Well, that is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews makes this clear as he continues on. Like I said, this is a transitional section here in the book. And so what are the two unchangeable things that it is impossible for God to lie? Well, he swore them there in Psalm 110. The eternal priesthood, you are a priest forever. And the fact that he is in the order or in the line of Melchizedek. Now, you have to read chapters 7 through 10 to get more exposition on those two ideas. But the writer shows us, just to say it succinctly, that as opposed to the priesthood in the Old Testament where they lived for a few years, served as priest, and died, Jesus is eternally our high priest. And as opposed to those high priests in the Old Testament, or, or no, I, I should get, let me get back to that first point again. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. It's an eternal sacrifice. The sacrifices they had to give in the Old Testament system had to go on and on and on. And the second point is that he's from the order of Melchizedek, not from the order of Aaron. And again, these are the points that the writer is going to bring up in more detail in the continuing 
sections of the, of the book. But for our purposes and as we look at this text, those promises made to Jesus there in Psalm 110 show us that God, it is impossible for Him to lie. And we can be encouraged today because of the absolute certainty of God's promises. He can't lie. He didn't lie with Abraham. He didn't lie with Christ. And He doesn't lie to us when He makes promises to us. We have this hope, verse 19, as an anchor of the soul, firm and steadfast, entering into that inner sanctuary behind the, the curtain. This curtain originally separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and it could only be entered once a year by the high priest on the day of Passover, on the day of atonement, to offer atonement for the sins of the people. That veil, as you know, was torn in two when Christ died. And we can now enter into that most holy place by the blood, the shed blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And again, that's going to be ex the writer's going to expand on that more in the coming chapters. But Jesus has indeed already entered this place as our forerunner, verse 20, our forerunner on our behalf. He has entered this place as our substitute in our, on our behalf there. And he has become a high priest forever in the line of Melchizedek as a result of his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. So just as God fulfilled his promise to Abraham, and as he fulfilled his promise to Christ, he likewise can be trusted by us today. Just like he used an oath to support his promise with Abraham, he likewise supports his promise to us with an oath. He does this because he wants to show us the unchanging nature of his purpose and in order that we might be encouraged as we face the challenges and trials of life. God acts to show us his character and to encourage us as we continue to think about his promises. So are you living in a way that trusts in God's promises? God makes many promises in his word. I'd love to talk about a lot of them, but I'm only going to mention four here as we come to the end of our sermon here this morning. Some promises that we can bank on and know that God is going to fulfill them for us. First of all, the promise of eternal life. The promise that whoever believes in Jesus as their sin substitute and to all who seek forgiveness of their sin by repenting, they will receive eternal life. This provides us with the greatest assurance that we can have. Failure to trust God will result in doubt about our salvation or in a misperception that we must somehow please God in this life in order to be certain of salvation. There is no need to doubt our relationship with Christ if we have truly believed and repented. God has promised to save all who come to Him through Christ. And we can take encouragement in texts like John 10, 28 and 29, which remind us that no one, where Jesus says, no one can pluck us out of our Father's hand. We don't have to doubt. Think of that text in Acts 16, 31, when the Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What does he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Quite simple. You believe, God saves, End of story. We can trust in that promise. A second promise is that we can trust in, the, in deliverance from the power of sin in our lives. 
We lack trust when we choose to give up in our struggle against sin. When we ignore our sin and fail to be honest with what is really going on in our lives. When we shift the blame for our sin. When we choose to make excuses for our sin. And when we seek the wrong means for deliverance from sin. Do you really believe that God can deliver you from any sin problem that you might have? Well, his word says that he can and that you can. Think of a text like Romans 6.14, which tells us, Sin will not have dominion over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. You must trust him by following his plan rather than your own. Yes, the fight struggle against sin is a war, but it's a war that Jesus has already won. And he says that you, by his grace, can win it too. So, we have the promise of eternal life if we believe. We have the promise of deliverance from the power of, of sin in our struggle with sin. Thirdly, we have the promise of the presence of God. Hebrews itself reminds us in Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will always be with us. We don't have to be afraid of the dark. We don't have to be worried or wonder whether God is with us when we're lonely, when we've been ridiculed or are unpopular because we've stood up for the truth. We're not left alone when we have a difficult decision to make. In so many other situations of life, we are not left alone. God will never leave us, and he'll never forsake us. A fourth promise we can think of this morning is the promise that God will never bring more suffering into your life than you can bear, and that he will bring comfort to any who is oppressed. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us of the first idea there, and 2 Corinthians 1.7 reminds us of the second. God will bring comfort, and he will help us, and, and we will not need to seek unbiblical relief in our times of suffering. God's answer is always the right one, so we can hold on to him, we can trust in him, we can wait upon him, and he will make a way through those times of suffering. We have the promise of his presence and help no matter what our circumstances are. Indeed, God will help us through our suffering and he will bring comfort in our suffering. So we can be encouraged while suffering, and we don't need to fight it and turn away from God, but rather to run toward him. So trusting in a God we cannot see strikes us at the core of what we say that we believe. Abraham believed God's promise enough that he was willing to kill Isaac. And God fulfilled his promise to Abraham by preserving Isaac's life and giving him the promise of an heir who would continue in God's blessing. God's dealings with Abraham show us that we have an unchangeable and trustworthy God who will never renege on his promises. If he has made a promise to us, we can be absolutely certain that the certain hope that we have in heaven with this God who has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins is sure and steadfast. We look to this word 
that we hold in our hands and we see the promises right there in black and white. Promises of eternal security. Problems, I mean, promises of deliverance from sin. Promises of presence in trouble and promises of help in our suffering. Are we trusting in God's promises? Well, indeed, trust is more than a good idea. It certainly is more than a simplistic affirmation that we make. It is a demonstrated fruit that flows from an obedient decision and action performed by one who has been supernaturally snatched from the life of sin. I think the psalmist summarized this meaning in Psalm 42, and especially in verse 5. It's a stanza that happens three times in Psalms 42 and 43. Hope in God. Hope in God, my soul. For he alone is the only true hope that we have in this life and in the life to come. Would you pray with me?